welcome to the weekly podcast of River Valley Church. We're glad you're here. Our heart is to lead people to Jesus and launch them into their God-given purpose. So we pray you would encounter God in a fresh, new way today. To learn more about our church, visit rivervalley.org. Now, let's tune in to this week's message. wrapping up our series on Flawed But Fly, and I've enjoyed this. And in week one, we learned that we are flawed people, and the Bible is full of flawed people that are in it, and a God that would put all those stories in there, even stories that we're embarrassed of, uh, is a God that will put us in the story. That was a great thing. And then last week, we preached about a a flawed church, and uh, I am glad that I only had to preach it once because I cried like a baby. And uh, here's my promise, I will try not to cry this week, okay? So, uh, but we learned that the church is flawed, that the church is flawed. Matter of fact, if you missed last week's sermon, can I just tell you this? You have to watch it online. If you missed last week's sermon, um, it is like one of those marking moments in our church's history, okay? It's one of those ones where we're going to be different as a church because of what was preached and what was done last week, what was planted in people's hearts. So if you missed it, Please, of all the sermons, please get in and watch that one so you'll be in step with what God is doing as we move forward, okay? Because in that, I talked about we're a flawed church. We're not perfect. You know, we have issues. Um, You can go to Google reviews and see people that love our church and hate our church. Some people that love me, some people that don't like me a lot, okay? You can see that, all right? But here's the thing. We have flaws. We're a flawed church. And what we talked about, which is so important, we have to give grace. We have to give forgiveness. We have to work through those things. And I had people who came up to me that said, Pastor, I've been mad at you for 10 years. I've held this little thing there, and I'm sorry. And I had others come up. I've been mad for five years. And some things, you know, I was like, I I didn't even know I did it. And I thought, I'm sorry, I didn't even know that. I mean, I didn't even know her. Man, I'm so glad you talked about that because I was holding a grudge against a family member for 12 years. And I kept thinking it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be like that. Matter of fact, every time we take communion, you should be thinking like, if I have issue against somebody, I shouldn't even take this. I should go settle that. I should go settle it and take care of it. One time in the history of our church, I didn't take communion that weekend. I said, I'm gonna administer communion, but I'm not even gonna take it. Because I'm at issue with somebody and I've not even tried to solve it. And I said, so I'm going to give you communion, but I can't partake. And I'm going to leave this service and go try to reconcile with this person. You, you were never meant to live in the offense, live in the hurt. And if you can hear me, please, please, please give grace, give forgiveness. Try to reconcile. Go. You were never meant to walk into church and be like, oh, they're here. We're going to sit on that side. Yeah. You were never meant to go, I can't be in that life group because they're in it. You were never meant to be like that. You are meant to give grace, to give forgiveness. Do not let a, an offense separate your family, your friendships, your church. As much as it's possible on your side, live at peace with everybody. 
okay? You just need to do that. Because grace, when we give grace to each other, it's the most amazing, revolutionary teaching in the whole world. There's nothing, there's nothing, nothing, nothing that comes close to grace. Nothing. It's just amazing that that we would be merciful and give grace and, and, and give people that forgiveness that they don't deserve. That's just an incredible thing. I, I was in Rotary in Apple Valley and we had a guest speaker, Sheikh Adnan El Kaysa. How many remember that guy from the wrestling thing, you know, the Sheikh, you know? Okay, I'm dating myself. Okay, but the Sheikh was there in wrestling and, and true story. My grandparents used to go to early service when they were alive just so they could get home in time to watch wrestling. True story, all right? That's what they did. So I have a little wrestling background here. But Sheik was speaking at uh, Rotary, and he was talking about living in Iraq, and he knew Saddam Hussein and all this stuff. And he's saying, like, you know, in the Middle East, it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If you hurt me, I hurt you. We got to hurt equal. And he's like, I don't know how we can get peace in the Middle East. And I raised my hand. I said, is there any solution? He's like, I don't think there is. And I said, what about Grace. What if somebody just forgave the other person and said, it's enough, you don't deserve it, but I get it. And he's like, well, that would work. But he almost thought like, how would that happen? How would that even take place? Grace is an amazing thing. We realize we're flawed. We realize the church is flawed. We get it. We get it. And people outside the church, how many know they know we're flawed too? They know and they look at it. I, I saw a bumper sticker not long ago and it said, Jesus Save me from your people. You know, and I thought, <laughs> that person gets it. We are flawed. We're flawed. Matter of fact, there was a book that was written that said, they like Jesus, not the church. All right? Now, the problem is they've seen a bunch of Christians out there that are flawed, and they see a bunch of churches that are flawed, and that's their example. That's their example. That's what they see. And how many know that the news is never going to do any favor for the church, okay? They're always, always going to find the craziest Christian they can find and put him on TV. They're going to find the Terry Jones, you know what I'm saying? The guy who's like, burn the Quran, that guy who has a church of like 12, you know? And they're going to put him on there and say like, here he is, crazy Christian guy, look at him, you know? And they're always going to find the person that has no teeth and sitting there like, yeah, kill them all. I mean, they're going to find that person and put him on TV, Okay? So we've got our work cut out for us. But here's the good news. We're flawed, but for the most part, most Christians are pretty normal. Most Christians are pretty good people. Most Christians are full of grace and full of mercy, and we have our work cut out for us. We have to get out there and show a world that flawed people and flawed churches are still an amazing thing. And so if we know that people are flawed and we know the church is full of flaws, then here's the question we're going to look at today. What about the one we're worshiping? Is he good? Is he righteous? Is he sinless? Is he perfect? So let's start with that. Is he good? Let's, ad, let's just admire Jesus for just a moment. Is he good? The Dr. Luke, Dr. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and wrote Acts. He was a doctor. He went and investigated the claims of Jesus and studied the church. He looked at that. And this is what he wrote for like a summary verse about Jesus' life on earth. In Acts 10.38, he said this. He said, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. 
Dr. Luke is saying, Jesus went around doing good. He was good. He was a good man. And, and you look through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you read them, you'll see good, 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 good. Jesus is good. John chapter 21, verse 25, look what John says. He said, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. He's saying he's so good. What we have in our gospels is just scratching the surface of how much good Jesus did. He did so much good. It would fill the world. Matter of fact, no one in the whole history of the world has ever had more songs sung about them. No one. Think about it. We're releasing a new CD at our church. Songs about Jesus. Think about the hymnals. Songs about Jesus. Think about it. No one in the history of the world has more songs sung about them. No one in the history of the world has more books written about him. No one in the world has inspired more artwork. I love to travel. And when I travel, I love to go to famous places. And I love to go to museums. But I got to admit... I'm a top 10 kind of guy, all right? When I go to the museum, I'm like, what are the top 10 things here I need to see? I'm gonna see 10, and then I'm out, all right? So that's how I do it, all right? Just come with me sometime. Um, But when I go in there, it's like pictures of Jesus, pictures of Jesus, pictures of Jesus. It's Jesus everywhere in the museums because he's inspired more artwork than anyone because he's so good. Napoleon said this about Jesus. He said, I know men, and I tell you, Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there's no possible term of comparison. All other leaders have founded empires, but upon what we did, we rest the creation of our genius upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And Napoleon said, at this hour, millions of men would die for him. The non-Christian historian H.G. Wells said, I'm a historian, I'm not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. As a matter of fact, our dating is split in two because of Jesus, B.C., A.D. B.C. stands for the English before Christ. A.D. is Latin, Anno Domini. It means in the year of our Lord. And so we have broken history in half and we date because of Jesus. Now there's a movement and it's not brand new. About 1708 it started where they would start saying CE instead of AD. And here's why. Because they said, well, we don't want to offend people that don't believe in Jesus. And when you look at this, the terms Christ, that's used in B.C., And the term Lord is used in AD. And they're saying, well, we don't want to, I mean, those are statements that he's Christ. And if he's Christ, that demands something. And if he's Lord, that demands anything. And so we don't want to offend non-believers. And so we want to go to CE, okay? Now, isn't it interesting for just a moment? Whenever Christians are offended, isn't it a good thing that we don't burn anything down or kill anybody? Isn't that a good thing? Just, Just saying, you know, okay? But we're worried about them. We're like, CE, you know, I'm not saying common era. I'm just going to be an old fogey on this, and I'm sticking with A.D., deal with it, all right? So that's the way it's going to be. All right. He changed. He was so good, though, he changed the attitude towards adoption. Prior to Jesus, the average life expectancy for children that were not in a home was eight. Eight. 
because people would abandon their children. And when Jesus was born, people saw that he had an adoptive father. Joseph was his adopted father because the Bible tells us in Matthew 1 when Jesus was going to be born. And I won't read the whole text, but in Matthew chapter 1, it talks about that Mary was pregnant. Joseph was like, "Uh, we're not married yet. That must be somebody else's baby. We're not getting married. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then Joseph was to basically step in as an adoptive father to Jesus. And so the whole world that was Christian was saying, wait, 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 wait. If Jesus had an adopted father, why don't we adopt all these children? And the whole attitude towards adoption changed because of how good Jesus is. It's an amazing thing. Think of what he's done for kids. Now, what has he done for women? Women's rights. He's so good for women. And again, I won't go into it, but I'll give you the scripture reference, Luke 10, 38 through 42. We know that story of Mary and Martha listening to Jesus and Mary's sitting there listening and Martha's over there working away and Martha's mad because Mary's not helping and Jesus says, well, you should be listening. She's doing the important thing. We've heard sermons on that. But let me tell you this. The very fact that he would teach women was almost scandalous because they were seen as like, you don't teach women. You don't talk to women. You don't do that. And yet Jesus is like, I'm elevating everyone. Everyone needs to hear the story of God. Everyone needs to be in on this. And so he's teaching women, and he did so much to raise their rights. And while we're on this, real quick, can I just say this? Jesus wasn't married. I don't care what this little parchment says. Okay, for those of you that have not been watching the news lately, let me fill you in. There's a little parchment that Harvard is in the possession of, Harvard University. And this little parchment of paper uh, claims that Jesus was married. Now, let me explain this. A recent article that just came out yesterday or the day before, Harvard Theological Review is hesitating on the gospel of Jesus' wife. Scholars at the International Congress on Coptic Studies in Rome, where the paper was delivered, said the fragment's grammar, form, and content raised several red flags. A papyrologist, and who has that job? A papyrologist... (laughs) at the University of Hamburg, flatly called it a forgery. If it's real, it was looted and smuggled most likely from Egypt. If it's not real, then it shouldn't be out there at all and in the discussion. Yet, our press, oh, we got to say it. We got to say it. We want to cast doubt on everybody's faith in America. We want to shut you down. Your savior was married. It's a phony. It's a fraud. You can't believe the things of Jesus because he was married, blah, blah, blah. Okay, first of all, the thing is probably a forgery or fraud. Okay, so let's admit that. Secondly, if it's legit, it was written years after Jesus was on this earth. And all it is is like a letter that somebody says, I think Jesus had a wife. That's it. It's not Jesus saying, hey, by the way, guys, I had a wife. It's not that. Somebody years later saying, we think he had a wife. That's all it is. Somebody's opinion There are crazy opinions out there right now about Jesus. If you go to Washington, D.C., there's about eight of them standing outside the White House claiming they're Jesus, okay? So (laughs) that's the world we live in. So just because somebody says it doesn't make it true, okay? He wasn't married. Now, he did a lot for women's rights. Don't miss that, but he wasn't married, all right? He did a lot for education. I don't have time to go in it. 
But for 217 years in our country, from 1620 on, for 217 years, most of the education was private and Christian. It was the Christians that educated, said people need to read the word of God. Jesus inspired that. Matter of fact, right now, if you go into a nation that is not inspired by Jesus, you go into Afghanistan, 84% of women are illiterate. Jesus is like, like, come on, everybody, learn. And Christians are like, everybody needs to read the word of God. They need to get in on this. Every one of the first 123 colleges in America were founded by Christians with Christian purposes. Harvard, that has the little parchment, okay? <laughs> Harvard was named after John Harvard, a minister. He donated his library so pastors would have books and could be trained to go out and reach the world. Dartmouth University was founded to train missionaries. This was inspired because Jesus is good. Our nation, religious freedom, was founded because Jesus is good. George Washington at his inauguration, and if you follow me on Twitter, I put this trivia out there. I said, which president at his inauguration bowed, knelt down, kissed the Bible, and then led the House and Senate to a two-hour church meeting? George Washington, at his inauguration, kisses it, kneels down, and then says to the House and Senate, we're going to church for two hours. Man, our, our, our nation, our founding... 34% of the content in the letters, the founding documents, the things that were going around in that day are either quotations of the scripture or references to the scripture. He inspired that. Jesus did. Hospitals and relief organizations were inspired by Jesus because he's good. And people saw that if he did good, we should do good. At the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, be sure, AD 325, they determined that wherever there was a church, a corresponding hospital should be there so that we could take care of those that are hurting. And as amazing as this is, Jesus is good. He is good, but I gotta go somewhere deeper than that. He's more than good. He's flawless. He's sinless. He's amazing. And if you have your Bibles, give me a moment here. Hebrews chapter four, Hebrews chapter six. We're going there. We're digging in for a minute. It'll be on the screen. Hebrews chapter four, verses 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now let me read Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, 26 through 28. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself for the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. Now these scriptures, in order to understand them, I've got to give you a history lesson. I'm gonna go way back. God created the earth. In a, man was created in a sinless state, but he sinned. And when he, was, when he sinned, he became unholy. Because God is holy, he could not be in a right relationship with man, and so he needed something that would cover their sins. And so God instituted animal sacrifices. Yes, God did. He instituted animal sacrifices, and their blood would cover 
the sins. That allowed God to be in relationship with mankind because a blood sacrifice was made. The people that would make these sacrifice, sacrifices were the priests. God set aside priests to make these sacrifices. And when they made these sacrifices, one of them each year would be selected to be the high priest. The high priest would go in one day a year on the Day of Atonement and offer a sacrifice for all the people. Now, if you want more on this, I did a sermon called Scapegoat. Okay, in the original slang series that we did, you can hear more about this, but I'm getting you caught up to speed. He would go into the holy place, and in the temple, there was a place with a curtain where in this holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. If you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, it looks similar to that thing, and it was in there. And God's spirit was there, and they were forbidden to go in there except for this one time a year. And so the high priest would go and make sacrifices for himself because he's a sinner. He knew he was flawed. And so he would make sacrifices for himself and he would bathe himself and he would think holy thoughts because he's going into the presence of God to stand before God. And he's like, I am a sinner, God. I offer these sacrifices for me. I'm not good. I realize I'm not good. Let these things cover my sins. And I'm thinking holy thoughts and I'm washed and clean and I'm coming in your presence. Once a year he would do that and he would offer sacrifices, okay? But the writer of Hebrews says in verse 27 of chapter seven, unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day for his own sins because he has no sins. He's flawless, he's perfect, he's amazing. We're flawed, the church is flawed. Jesus is not flawed. He's perfect. And the writer of Hebrews is saying that. He says, such a high priest meets our need in verse 26. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That's an amazing thing. That's the Jesus we serve. There's no scandal. There's no scandal. How many are glad in political season, there's no scandal commercial that can be made about Jesus? You know what I'm talking about? You're like, he hates babies, pushes grandma over the cliff, you know, knows a communist. You know, I mean, how many know? It's like, whatever. I mean, political season makes my stomach turn, you know, because you just think, like, we have the worst people in the world running for office, you know? <laughs> There's no scandal. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, this is what it says. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Here's what it means. He did it. He was born, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose again from the dead, went into heaven, is seated on the right hand of God the Father. There's no chance he can sin anymore. There's no chance. He took care of it. He did it. He lived the perfect life. He's exalted in heaven. He's not going to fail you. There's no chance. There's no scandal. He's perfect. He's there. You can trust him. You can bank your faith on it. He is perfect, and he was perfect and will be perfect. There's no scandal. I mean, in a world that has scandals with ministers, how many know you're always like, come on, finish strong, finish strong. I mean, Billy Graham led me to the Lord. When I was seven years old, I was at a crusade. I gave my life to Jesus. And I could tell you, watching all the scandals in the world with ministers, I'm like, come on, Billy, finish strong, come on. Stay faithful, come on. And it looks like he's going to do it. All right, you know. But I mean, there's no scandal with Jesus. He did it. He's perfect. Now listen to this. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, 
but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. Now I want to tell you this. He has been tempted in every way that you have and he never sinned. He's been tempted. But imagine if he did sin for just a moment. How different would we live if the Bible said Jesus was tempted in every area and he only blew it in the area of sexuality? All of us that are trying to live pure lives would be like, man, if he couldn't make it, I'm out. You know, like, it's not going to work. I mean, but he didn't. He lived perfect. And so you can live pure too. For those of us, just think if it was like Jesus had an anger problem. What if he had an anger problem? And all of a sudden on the night that he was betrayed and they came to arrest him, the Bible tells us that they had two swords. What if he had grabbed both the swords and threw one to Peter and he took one and went all angry ninja on him, you know, like, ah, you know, and went after the guys. And then after he like wiped out a bunch of them, then laid down the sword and was like, all right, arrest me. Here's how we'd live. We'd be like, yeah, our theology is hit him first and ask forgiveness. That's how we'd live, right? <laughs> but he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He didn't have an anger problem. So anybody that has an anger problem, bring it to the cross because Jesus went way past your anger issue and didn't sin. What if he just said, guys, when it comes to taxes, we're going to be cheats on this, all right? Because the church needs the money way more than the government. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to figure out a way to sneak. But he didn't. He said, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God what's God. He said, if you're going to live in Caesar's kingdom, you got to do what Caesar says. Man, he didn't do those things. He didn't do it. Now, now listen, listen, you got to stick with me. This is going to be a huge freedom for teenagers. You need to listen, especially teenagers. You got to listen to this. Jesus was tempted in every way that we were and went way beyond any level of temptation we ever faced. He went way beyond, way beyond. And people say, well, like, you can't relate to, you can't relate. And the the world will say, like, okay, here's the deal. If you want to have a testimony and you're a kid in the church, you need to get drunk or or have premarital sex or get high or you need to lie or you need to do this because you don't have a testimony. You can't speak to me because you don't have that same testimony. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is a lie that is trying to get our young people disqualified, dabbling in the things that will destroy them. Okay? Jesus was tempted in every way, and he can speak to every issue, and he endured it, and you don't have to go and give in. People that give in to temptation don't know what temptation's really about. Here's what I mean by that. If you say, well, you can't speak to me about adultery because you've never committed adultery. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yes, I can. I faced temptation and didn't give in to it. Maybe you faced on a scale one to 10, level three, and you gave in. I'm at level five temptation and I've not given in. Don't tell me you don't have a clue what it's like to live a holy life. But see, they say, well, you can't because you don't know it. You've never been there. C.S. Lewis said this argument is ridiculous. He said, this is silly. People that give in to temptation after five minutes have no clue what it's like to live holy for one hour or a lifetime, or resisting temptation year in, year out. He said, that's why bad people know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life, always giving in. So when somebody says, well, you don't know, you don't know. no, 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 I'm, I'm living at level five temptation. I'm living at level seven. I'm living, I'm living beyond that. And Jesus faced every level possible, and he didn't give in. Now think about this. Just so you fully grasp this, there is a level in your body where you will have so much pain that you will pass out. You cannot remain conscious because the pain is so intense that your body 
boom, shuts down. You get to that threshold. It's somewhere beyond childbirth, okay? It's somewhere beyond there, all right? <laughs> Say eight, okay? It's somewhere past eight, all right? Yeah. But physically, you can't go beyond it. You, boom, you shut down. There is a level of temptation that you face that you have no clue that would be level 10 that Jesus faced. He faced it and lived strong. He fa- you have no clue. I have no clue what those levels are like. I've given in to temptation at much lower levels, and Jesus never gave in. Never, not once. So don't let the world tell you that you have to sin. Don't let the world tell you that you don't know. You live strong and say, I will say no to temptation. I will say no to the devil. I will live a testimony. I'm going to hang up the higher levels. I really wish somebody would have told me this when I was a teenager. I did not discover this until the last couple weeks preparing for this sermon. And I wish I'd have known this, you know, 30 years ago. 40, yeah, somewhere in there. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I'd have known this. Somebody said, well, I don't know if Jesus knows all the time. I mean, seriously, because I don't know if he knows, like, women throwing themselves at you. You know, I don't know if he knows that. Yes, he does. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, was wiping his feet with her hair and her tears. It would have been very easy for Jesus to take advantage of her, and he didn't sin. The woman caught in adultery. He was the last one there with her. He would have said, well, nobody else accuses you. How about you and me? He didn't. He looked temptation in the eye and walked away and overcame everything. You say, well, he doesn't know what it's like in this business climate to have to live, and, you know, it's a world where you have to lie. Oh, yeah, he did. Yes, he did. Scholars believe that Joseph died when Jesus was quite young and that he had to take care of his widow mom and his younger siblings. And then he had to take care of them. There would have been every opportunity to steal, to cheat, to cut corners, and to try to do something uh, illegal. And instead he's like, no, I'm standing strong. Jesus knows every temptation. He's not flawed. He's never sinned. He's amazing. Last thing, Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because he's amazing, because he's sinless, because he's perfect, because he paid the price one time, one time and for all, we can now, because of the blood of Jesus, approach the throne of God with boldness. Now think about the difference of this. The high priest had to approach it like this. Oh, I'm thinking holy thoughts. I'm thinking holy thoughts. I'm thinking holy thoughts. I'm, I'm coming in holy. I got the blood there. I got the blood. I'm good with you, right, God? I'm right with you. Good, good, good. And he's always in that moment because he doesn't know. He doesn't know. Was it good enough? We get to approach God like this. God, I know I'm not good enough. But the blood of Jesus was good enough. I, I could come in because of the blood of Jesus boldly to your throne, boldly asking, bringing my needs boldly to you. I don't have to be afraid. Beautiful things, he says. I call you sons and daughters. It'd have been amazing if he called the slaves and servants, but he says sons and daughters. You can go into his presence boldly because of the blood of Jesus. And the blood of Jesus not only covers your sins, and here's the biggest difference, animal sacrifices covered their sins, but it didn't remove them. It didn't take away the guilt. But Jesus' blood, that sacrifice on the cross, covered it and removed it as far as the east is from the west. He says, it's not there anymore. It's gone. 
it's gone. You don't have to go in there like, oh, I, I hope, I hope, I hope. You can say, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. It's gone, it's gone, it's gone. I could come boldly into the throne of grace. I could come boldly into the presence of God because it's gone, it's covered, it's taken away, it's done. It's an amazing, amazing thing. It says we can get grace and mercy. Grace is shown to the undeserving while mercy is compassion to the miserable. Grace is God's solution to man's sin. Mercy is God's solution to man's misery. Grace covers the sin while mercy removes the pain. Grace forgives while mercy restores. Grace gives us what we don't deserve while mercy withholds what we do deserve. For those that don't know him, can I tell you this? Grace is available. Grace is given. Grace is given. If you don't know Jesus, at the end of the service, there'll be prayer teams on the sides and they will be able to pray with you so you can find the grace of Jesus Christ. They will be able to pray with you. Grace is given. It's available. Now that you understand the context of who we have in Jesus, he's amazing. He's perfect. Once and for all, he paid the price. What an amazing thing. Grace is given. But for those of us that have been in the faith, that understand it, I think this demands of us that we worship more, with more intensity. I think this demands of us that we love him deeper, cherish him more, be willing, like, Lord, what else do you want me to do? I'll sacrifice. How much do you want me to give? I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. What need can I meet? How much more can I align my life with what your word says? You're everything. I'm nothing. We ought to be the best praisers, the best givers of grace, the best givers, the best people of servanthood, the best everything, because we understand what has happened through the price of Jesus Christ dying on the cross and paying the price for our sins. I'm going to give you homework, though. Homework. Either at the end of this service or tonight, I want you to do something. I want you to get on your knees before God because He's everything and we're nothing. And it's the most humble thing you can do. You can get on your knees or you can lay flat in front of the Lord. If you're doing it here at church, please only take a knee because space is limited. But I encourage you to do this. Last night, I practiced what I preached. I went home. Becca was asleep. And, you know, I prayed for healing on her. And the kids were coming home late, and I didn't want them to interrupt me. So I took my iPod, and I went into the closet. I went into our actual closet and um, laid down on the floor. And I knelt, and I just put my face to the carpet. I just said, God, you're everything. I'm nothing. Wow. That you could take a flawed person and let him preach this amazing message. That's incredible. That you could even love me. That you would call me son. Wow. And then I just laid flat on my face. And I'm going to tell you this. There's nobody else in the whole world. I lay flat on my face and humble myself before. But the one who's perfect, the one who's sinless, the one who's amazing, the one that died for me. And if you've never done that, maybe in your experience, you need to do that. You need to go home. I need you to lay out, just say, you are everything, and I am nothing. And just let the grace and mercy of God flood over you. And let that posture remind you that you are so low. He is so high, and yet he loves you so much. Wow. Wow. So God, right now, we realize you are everything and we are nothing. We are flawed and you are flawless. You are beautiful. You are pure. You are holy. You are above all. You are the perfect high priest. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. 
in a room full of people that are so unworthy, let us just be people that give grace. Let's be people that understand that the world needs to get in on what we have. The world needs to know that a sacrifice was made that will pay the price for their sins and they can have forgiveness. Help us to do more, to love more, to give more, to realign our life more on mission with you. You are worthy. Thank you for using flawed people and putting us together in a flawed church to talk about a Savior who has no flaws, who's beautiful, who's perfect, who's sinless. Thank you. Thank you for that grace. May our lives reflect that we understand what we've been given. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.